0: Please hold for Armchair Adventurer.
1: That's not the kind of podcast we are. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Let's see here. Hope your makeup routine's going okay so far. We're going to spice it up a little bit.
2: (laughs) What's up, YouTube? Uh, Today... (laughs) We cannot seem to figure out our repeated staffing issues. (laughs) Uh, It seemed as if everything was going according to plan. Paul has hit some roadblocks, not literally, and uh, hopefully he will be joining us by the end of the episode, but that is no guarantee. Uh, His insight would be nice, considering this episode we're talking almost entirely about an Air Force-related incident in the 1980s, but uh, we'll make do without him.
1: Moral of the story is here, you, the listeners, should really not take any of us for granted. We may someday not be with you anymore. We are truly in the wind. Yeah, you got to really enjoy us while you have us.
2: Now, this is commonly referred to as the Damascus missile incident, but uh, when you hear Damascus and missile next to each other, (laughs) generally you're thinking of a different Damascus and different missiles.
1: I shouldn't have laughed.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This, in fact, takes place in Damascus, Arkansas. And this is a perfect example of something called a broken arrow incident, which is basically military terminology uh, for an accident involving nuclear weapons that would potentially harm uh, citizens but would not create a risk for nuclear war. Uh, Basically, any sort of nuclear accident you know, with weapons, not just facilities on U.S. soil. Most of these have come in the form of bombers crashing. A lot of B-52 crashes. Uh, Publicly, the USAF, the Air Force, they acknowledge 32 of these incidents. However, that number might be a little low. A decommissioned, recently decommissioned Department of Energy document showed that there have been over 1,000 such incidents. This is probably one of the more severe ones, I will say. Except that um, that B fifty two that dropped a bomb that luckily didn't explode.
1: Oh man, that was the story that I was telling you about.
2: Yeah. Okay. The, what, like Greensboro. Greens,
1: uh, what's it called? North
3: Carolina.
2: Yeah, in Greensboro. Greensboro. Yeah. yeah. And. Uh, uh,
3: Goldsboro.
2: Goldsboro. And my understanding is what this B fifty two like ripped up in the atmosphere, got caught on it, something, and dropped its bomb.
1: Yeah, it started leaking fuel. So the fuselage ripped apart, and apparently, in order to drop the two hydrogen bombs that were in the plane, all you had to do was pull on this lanyard, which, I mean, come on. So anyways... Yeah, good safety system, guys. Yeah. In its free fall, the lanyard was pulled, so the bombs were technically released from the ripped-up fuselage, and it started all of the arming steps and it actually sent the signal the detonation signal but the only thing that stopped it was a single safety switch uh and so it just plowed into the ground and nothing happened
2: spectacular
1: and the thing is too in this documentary that we're getting a lot of this information from that one of the one of the one of the guys, one of the Minutemen, or like weapons designers or somebody, was like, "Here's the switch," and he was just like, "Click, click, click, click," like a light <laughs> switch, just click, click, click.
2: That's all it was. Almost an act of God, I would say yeah. that that didn't detonate. Um, Dan, you have some sort of uh, larger context for this whole this Lights. whole scenario that I will eventually get into.
1: My middle name. Context. Yes.
2: Okay. Yeah, just checking. I want to make sure it still was.
1: There's no context for that, but <laughs> <laughs> so this entire section of my notes is titled Money Was Free. And I was Ooh. inspired by a line from the documentary where one of the again, I can't remember if he was just a Minuteman or an actual like weapons designer or specialist, but he was basically characterizing the nineteen sixties in 1970s as a, if you were in nuclear design and weapons development, you could get just about as much money as you could ever imagine. right? Um, because that was the name of the game. Um, to give you some context and to horrify you a little bit, all it would take this was, I don't know, somebody calculated this, all it would take to completely annihilate the Soviet Union at the peak of its size and power would be about 50 to 100 nuclear warheads but by the mid-1960s how many do you think the united states had
2: mid-1960s yeah you said it'd take 50 to 100 yeah um 2,000 greg 5,000
1: (laughs) 32,000
2: nice (laughs) nice
3: Yeah. I was going to guess more like 15 to 20, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to way overshoot it, but, uh, it looks okay. like I would have undershot it. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of the warheads.
1: Yeah. It, it was, there were literal assembly lines for the component parts to nuclear warheads. Um, and we, we basically had the triple threat. We had planes in the sky at all times, every day, 365 <laughs> days a year, nonstop. There were planes in the sky with nuclear bombs on them. There were submarines with nuclear missiles. And, of course, we had land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. Good thing Paul is not here to probably call me out on that (laughs) because they might not have been that good or technically called that by then. But we're getting away with a lot without Paul being here for now. Um, Now, the whole moral of the story is, though, that the United States as fast as we were putting these things out in production, we did not have a lot of good control over these nuclear weapons. Uh, like Kane mentioned, there was an entire like categorization for these broken aero incidents, and like he also mentioned, over a thousand incidents, over a thousand accidents documented by the Department of Energy. Um, one thing that you should know, too, is... A lot of these accidents revealed, not because it happened, but just I don't know through like research and understanding how these machines work. A, a lot of these accidents had these nuclear like weapons designers thinking, man, all it would take really is like a bad fire to set one of these off. Um, because if you think about like what a what a circuit board looks like, it's basically just a bunch of metal connections that. If one piece of metal melts and touches another piece of metal, that might completely work around any sort of safety measure that you have.
2: Like close a circuit that needn't be closed.
1: Exactly. Uh, So remember that fire could spell disaster. Now it's time to zoom in a little bit on one weapon in particular in the United States arsenal called the Titan II missile. Greg, you ever hear of it? I
3: uh, I I've briefly heard about him. I think I've seen one um, down in Texas when I went and... Uh, in person? To the, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, it was like a, I think a husk of one at um, Johnson Space Center. Was it like, like above or not, ground? On a or
1: were you looking down at it?
3: Uh, I think it was above ground. Was it on its side or standing up? I can't remember. Okay. Because uh, I'm thinking if it was a Titan, I think it was on its side. Because they had a variety... It was, it was like an outdoor missile museum. It was at the same place where they have... Uh, there's a Saturn V. That's why we uh, were we were there to check out. Sick. We were there, There's only like two of them that are like on display. This is one of them. Uh, and the Saturn V is kept in a building, on its side, um, which uh, seeing that like they built the building around it, and it's,
1: <laughs>
3: good lord, it's a large building. But um, yeah, yeah, they had a, they had a variety of other missiles that were outside. Um, I think some of them, um, like NASA missiles, some of them were defense missiles. I don't
1: think the Titan II I like okay, I'm pretty positive the Titan II was not as tall as the Saturn V, but I actually didn't come up with a number, Kane, in your research. Did you come up with a number about how tall these missiles were?
2: I think about eighty feet. Wild. All right, good stuff. That's still huge. Yeah, it's eight yeah. stories. It's pretty big. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's yeah. enormous. They may or may not have had one there. Um I just know that there's a variety of missiles, but I've I've heard of the missiles before, but I'll hear let's hear some more.
1: So I got, a, I got a couple of stats on the uh, capabilities of a single Titan II missile, which, remember, we had thousands. Um, the warhead on top of a Titan II was, had a payload, is that what it is? Of yep. 9 megatons. Which was, imagine this, you take all the bombs dropped by all the armies, In World War II, every side of the conflict, all the bombs, you combine them, including the two atomic bombs dropped on Japan, three times that payload, that is nine megatons on top of one missile, one Titan II missile.
2: Good Lord. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to the episode we did about just, I guess, last episode, the uh, Mm -hmm. accidental explosions, we were talking about these enormous explosions. And we were measuring that in thousands of tons, right? In kilotons, not megatons. Yeah, those are kilotons. So this is orders of magnitude larger than even those, you know?
1: Yeah, and those, like, leveled sections of entire cities. Right. And we'll we'll get to what one of these would do later on and scare your pants off. Um, Also, I figured out, or I kind of did the math from listening to this documentary, that uh, from the push of the button that launches one of these, to impact on its target takes about 30 minutes wow yeah anywhere in the world
2: first class delivery <laughs> oh, jesus yikes that's, um, pretty,
3: that's pretty terrifying
1: to give you some even some more specific context to the disaster that we're talking about in damascus remember it, it happened in 1980 and by 1980 these titan II missiles were very old like they were reaching 20-ish years old Um, and so the reason though that they were really held on to at this point about uh, around 1980 was basically as a bargaining chip so in negotiations with the soviet union entering the 1980s we wanted them to get rid of as many warheads as we were getting rid of basically. And so the thought was, you know, by like the Carter administration and then the Reagan administration was, okay, let's hold on to these pieces of crap that are old and decaying and we'll just count those towards our tally and we'll say, okay, we'll get rid of a thousand of these, you get rid of a thousand of those. So really the only reason they existed by 1980 was as like a political tool.
2: I, hesitate to say this only because in that documentary, which I should say it's good that we're doing this episode because that documentary was incredible. It used to be available on Netflix and is no longer. But it is, I think it's technically uh, an episode of, what is that PBS series?
1: PBS American Experience.
2: American Experience. It's technically an episode of that, but it's called Command and Control. Um, Since it's not so available, I don't feel as bad about uh, basically covering most of the talking points of that documentary in this episode, but one thing they made a big point of at the end of that was how uh, the Air Force was quick to blame human error. One thing I do want to say, I don't want to act like we are accusing the Air Force of mishandling missiles because even though these were aging, it was not like housing or missile technology that caused this. It was pretty much a freak accident. Oh, yeah with you know with human involvement so it's not like missiles are you know there's no threat of missiles just blowing up all the time in silos not something to worry
1: about and this is a stat that i was saving towards the end of the episode but i feel like it's apt to bring it up now all in all since the dawn of the atomic age the u.s has built about seventy thousand nuclear weapons and never once has any of the warheads accidentally detonated that's good yeah it's pretty good track record um okay so the last little bit that you have to listen to me about is i'm going to talk to you about like one of what one of these missile sites looks like and then kane is going to get into this story of this disastrous Disaster. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Poignant, so poignant. Yeah. So let's get back in the uh, the way 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 back machine. I said it three times to avoid copyright issues with stuff you should know. Um, September eighteenth, the night of September eighteenth, nineteen eighty. We are in Damascus, Arkansas. Now Damascus, Arkansas is pretty much one of those towns of 20 people type situation it's just farmland for the most part but we're about three miles away from Bradley Arkansas which is a sort of larger town but 50 miles away from Little Rock Arkansas and at the end of Kane's story we're going to tell you something that makes it really not matter where the hell this missile is because it's
2: (laughs) going to mess everybody up and now, isn't this technically, even though it is right outside of Damascus and Bradley, this is technically part of Little Rock Air Force Base, right? This missile complex.
1: That, I think I'm it not is. Sure if You don't know, but I'm sure, like the Minutemen who staff it, start their day at Little Rock, perhaps, and then and then get their code and then drive. Right. I just place. mean it's under
2: the purvey of that Air Force Base. Like it's, it's their thing to worry about.
1: Now we miss Paul.
2: Exactly. We got <laughs> the political
1: <laughs> shit out of the way. <laughs> Um, so, so you, you're walking up this dirt road and you see this tall, probably 20 foot tall chain link fence, probably barbed wire at the top. You see these armed guards. What's that?
2: Certainly going to be razor wire on top. Yeah.
1: Yeah. that's, that stuff's cheap. They got that everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of armed guards, uh, ask you what you're doing there. You say you're there for a high school photography project and they let you right in. So you walk up to the middle of this open area and there's this big like, concrete slab sort of sticking up out of the ground, like covering a huge section of the ground. What you're actually looking at is a massive concrete and steel door that when the missile were to fire would actually open up out of the ground. We're talking tons of concrete and steel and that will come into play later. Um, Other than that, you can't really see anything above ground, but what's happening underground, you'll get a better picture of as we enter Story Corner with <laughs> Kane Smith, everybody. Let's hear it for Kane.
2: Woo! Woo! <laughs> um, so, like Dan said, uh, we, the incident in question took place on Thursday, September 18th, 1980, and leading into the early morning hours of Friday, the 19th. And uh, like all good things, this starts with a little bit of routine maintenance. <laughs> Very similar to the Chernobyl accident. Um, we are at Missile Complex 374-7, roughly three miles northeast of Damascus, Arkansas. And a team of the Propellant Transfer System, who kind of do you know, maintenance on the fuel tanks of the missiles, they are called in to do a regular routine check of the pressure in the oxidizer tank. Because my understanding is with rockets such as this, there's two tanks of fuel. There's the fuel and an oxidizer. And should those two meet, uh, there will be an explosion, and that propels the rocket. And I imagine there's some sort of scientific metering that goes on between those two gases in an important ratio. (laughs) Hopefully. Another thing Paul would have been good for.
1: Yeah. They're of not course just like, oh, for this one, we need a yeah. small garden hose, and this one, we need yeah, a lot of match heads, Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> now, uh, like Dan said, so they're doing the pressure check on this LGM 25C Titan II missile carrying a nine megaton W 53 nuclear warhead. And the two gentlemen from the PTS, the Propeller Transfer System team, that actually go down into the silo are Dave Powell. And Jeffrey Plum. New Air Force mandates had, you know, at the time had stated that torque wrenches were to be used in the checking of the oxidizer tanks instead of the ratchet they had previously used. Kane, what's the difference? Greg, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> so a
3: regular ratchet. I mean, it's just a, it's a, like the idea of a ratchet is something that like you know if if you're moving a wrench, you know, it'll you know, and you say you move it this way. And you move it back. There's like click, 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 and then you move click, click, click. click you know, yeah. That, that's, that's a ratcheting mechanism. Um, torque wrenches still do ratchet, but what they do is torque wrenches will when you're when you're doing the like the moving motion where you're actually like you know tightening down whatever you're tightening. Um, at some point, you'll feel a click. Well, at least on a, on a click type torque wrench, you'll you'll it'll stop. It'll give you an indication when you've hit a certain torque specification. So the, okay. the amount of torque on the bolt. So, say, say like, the bolts for, I imagine they're probably testing, like, you know, the bolts that hold down, say, like, some sort of, um, while well you were saying this is, this is, like, fuel tank repair stuff.
2: Yeah, checking the pressure of a yeah. tank.
3: So, they probably had to, um, loosen something to, to check the pressure, um, so they probably had to check some of the bolts or tighten down some of the bolts when they were putting it back together, um it is terrifying that they would have ever not used a torque wrench on something like that. Yeah. Uh, considering I use a torque wrench on like small bolts on a dirt bike. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> a nuclear missile seems like something where a torque wrench seems very important. So you perhaps it's your, good. Your
1: though. dirt bike does not have nine megatons <laughs> of nuclear.
3: <laughs> I mean, it may feel like it sometimes, but no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs>
2: Son of a bitch. Um, and so they get down into ready to go right in the missile bay. And Powell realizes that he has forgotten the torque wrench in the truck up at ground level. Nice. And so he opted to use a ratchet they had on site rather than have somebody go all the way back up to the truck. Now, of course, uh, this, is, this precipitates the accident. But if I could say something in defense of these the teams or the team that, uh, you know, did this. For one, they work very long... Grueling shifts. We're talking, I think it's five days on, two days off, but it's you work like a 13 hour shift and then you sleep for like five hours and then you're back on for another like 11 hour shift, things like that. This was their Friday. They were at the end of a five day stretch of working and they were supposed to be off for the day. But when this happened, they were leaving the site they were on to go home when they got the call like, hey, on the way back, stop in at 7 uh, 4 and check the pressure of the oxidizer tank. And then when they got there, uh, they were missing a part and they had to wait outside the silo for three and a half hours for the part to arrive on a helicopter. So they'd already been there very long, been a long day, a long week. They were ready to go home. And of course, he didn't think the torque wrench thing was that important because he had been using a ratchet to do the exact same job for three years at this point. So he takes the ratchet with him and uh, the I guess the actual like socket is that, is that what you'd call that thing that goes on to the wrench? Correct. Is not clicking in. So it's, he has to kind of hold it to keep it on the wrench. You see what I'm saying? Like normally yeah. you, just, you just click one on there and it stays on and then you ratchet it. But mm-hmm. it wasn't clicking in, so he had to hold it. And um, it weighed eight pounds. Is and it? eventually that, uh, that got the best of his feeble arms. <laughs> um, but he ended up dropping the eight-pound uh, socket, down the missile silo shaft. And it fell about six stories before it hit a thrust mount, basically just a, a structural piece of metal at the bottom of the shaft.
1: Jesus, they were way up there.
2: Yeah. Greg,
3: question. So, being the, uh, being the one who has not researched here, I can uh, I can already see something bad going on here.
2: Oh,
1: what's your prediction good
3: uh well this is a liquid fueled rocket um i i know a decent amount about rockets and what i what i do know is that liquid fueled rockets it can be pretty pretty dangerous especially if the skin gets pierced uh i see an eight pound piece of metal falling inside of a missile silo as a exceptionally dangerous thing to be having going on. Am, am I correct in that assumption? You are
2: absolutely correct. Uh, the socket uh, fell down the shaft, bounced off thrust mount, and pierced the skin of the fuel tank, the uh, the bottom part of the first stage of the missile, and the fuel releases as a gas, Arizine 50, and Ooh. the fuel began to leak out into the shaft. Yikes. So the crew are pretty much immediately evacuated. Some of them wanted to stay around and fix the issue, but it's, uh, it's becoming pretty clear that this is turning disastrous because the fear basically was that the loss of pressure in the fuel tank would eventually cause that entire lower section to not have enough structural support, and they knew that the missile would kind of collapse in on itself. And if that were to happen, the oxidizer tank would probably leak and touch all of the fuel that had already accumulated in the shaft and explode.
1: So let me this is something that I've been trying to understand. Okay. So when the gas is like was is like inside its tank, inside the shell, it is actually providing like structural support
2: yeah. for the thing.
1: Okay. So as it's leaking, it's it's becoming like a cylinder of paper almost. Yeah with the weight on top. Okay.
2: Uh I, I guess because you know, it's, it's, in, it's under so much pressure that it's it's a liquid, even though it is a gas, right? At, like, atmospheric pressure. But they've condensed it to a liquid, so there's so much outward force that it provides a lot of the structure.
1: Oh, man. That is so... That sounds just so fragile, you know? Yeah. And then they just light it on fire, and it goes somewhere? Like, what? <laughs> yeah,
2: pretty much. <laughs>
3: um, kind of a layman's explanation for that whole thing is, think of, like, a soda can. Like, a soda can that's filled and sealed, you can, you can stand on top of that.
2: Right. That's a good point.
3: But, but think of a soda can that's, you know, top is popped and <sighs> it's empty. That'll, that'll collapse immediately if you try and stand on it. It's amazing <sighs> how it. much, like, structural integrity you can get by outward pressure on something like that.
1: Greg is really crushing this uh, student chair yeah, tonight.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> and, of course, you know, outside of just the missile exploding, which is already a problem, uh, l- lest we forget there is a nine megaton warhead strapped to the top of this thing that they're not really sure what's going to happen if the missile explodes you know
1: right F- big fiery explosion right kind of adds a lot of variables
2: the uh the pts team specifically dave powell was pretty anxious to admit to the missile commander on base that uh he had caused a leak in the fuel just because it's a pretty serious issue so they wanted to see if they could figure it out beforehand He's but like a 20-year-old 20,
1: 20 kid, too, right? Yeah, like pretty much, yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: very young. And Because uh, I didn't they even make a point? One of the guys in the documentary made a point that he was looking around, and he's like, the people that they called in to help, I'm 24, and I'm the oldest person here, and the experts <laughs> that just came in are younger than me. Jesus. Um, But once the missile commander finds out of the gravity of the situation, it, of course, goes straight up the chain, and the... There's a special team called the Missile Potential Hazard Team that was called up, and this is uh, people from all around the country. Basically, uh, it was basically a loop in of S- Strategic Air Command (SAC) Colonel Ben Scallern, the leading expert on the Titan II in the USA- USAF. I think he was in Louisiana at some Air Force Base in Louisiana, and then of course some of the technical staff from Martin Marietta who designed the Titan II. God, and that's they a, bring in everybody. That's a business name, not a person, by the way. Martin, uh, Bar- Martin Mariette is a defense contractor. Now, of course, the big guns have been called in, but this is also an unprecedented situation. So what they came up with was they're going to get in contact with all of the PTS uh, airmen in the area. They're going to call them all, and they're going to explain the situation and say, uh, this is completely voluntary. You don't have to go if you don't want to, but here's the situation, here's the stakes. And they also got two of the best crew chiefs they could, uh, Senior Airman David Lee Livingston and Sergeant Jeff Kennedy. Pretty shortly after they got there, uh, Kennedy knew that if he could get in quick, he would be able to tell if there was anything that they could do. So he went in by himself, uh, just with a gas mask. Plain clothes, just with a gas mask, went in, which... uh, Evidently, it is a violation of SAC rules on missile bases. There's you're only supposed to, you basically, there's parts of the missile base you can't go to by yourself. You have to be in pairs. Oh, so
1: not even like that he was just in like plain clothes? That right. wasn't the, the violation? actual violation
2: was that he went in alone. Oh, and he determined that there was action they could take, but they needed to move quickly. But when he gets outside, the missile commander finds out that he went in alone. And fit within 15 minutes, the entire PTS team has been removed from their capability of making any decisions about the matter by Strategic Air Command. Once once SAC found out, they quickly shut that down and said, nope, <laughs> Brass is making the decisions on this one.
1: Always getting commands and orders from freaking Omaha.
2: Yeah, I'm, sh- <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, this is the beginning of Kennedy's frustrations with this whole—frustrations uh, so- is pretty— a pretty weird word to use considering what, what, what transpires, but uh, there's, this is the beginning of the friction between Kennedy and the Air Force brass, I should say. Mm. Now, by this time, Sack has decided to go ahead and send them in uh, as a team and see what they can do, but when they get in, the sensors on their emergency equipment indicate that not only is the atmosphere inside the facility uh, it, so populated by the, by the Airzyne 50 that it could explode, you know, ignition was very likely. But also, uh, if they were in there too long, the Arizine might actually melt their protective suits. Oh. So, of course, they are evacuated again. But as they're leaving, um, the missile commander says, "Let's, let's turn on one of the exhaust fans. And so Livingston decides to go in by himself. He turns around, and, you know, Kennedy's just outside, so it doesn't look like he's violating, but he knows that, uh, it's a pretty pretty dangerous thing, needn't endanger two people. So Livingston goes in. This is shortly after 3 o'clock in the morning, on the 19th. He re-enters to turn on the exhaust fan, and unfortunately, turning that exhaust fan on caused, they believe it caused an electrical arcing in the motor, and wow. uh, that ignited the entire thing. So then, of course, almost instantly, the 740-ton silo door, was launched away and the entire second stage of the rocket, including the warhead are launched out of the silo. Um, took them a little, a concerning amount of time. Then by that, I mean longer than instantly uh, to find the warhead. <laughs> they couldn't find it until well after daybreak the next day, but they ended up finding it in a ditch, partially buried, undetonated. Thankfully.
1: Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm guessing that anybody <laughs> who would be in a position to search for it would have been deceased if it had not been.
2: True. And run. I was also thinking, like, could you imagine being the. Like, they, they used, like, a bulldozer and a, like, uh, what do you call it? Like, a, a backhoe to get it out. Could you like imagine? Like, an excavator? Yeah. Could you imagine the fear <laughs> you would feel uh, you taking like a bulldozer to a undetonated warhead because right, i'm done. assuming you you're not thunk. calling yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. What, what did you say? you hear <laughs> <see your> thunk <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, oh that's a nuclear oh. warhead yeah.
1: and i'm assuming they didn't have like steve at the air force base who could operate the excavator i bet you they had to call like yeah. Joe down the street who runs who owns, the contracting He company. owns the excavating business, yeah.
2: <laughs> and, of course, it was retrieved and taken to the Pantex Weapons Assembly Plant. I'm hoping that it was decommissioned, but who knows? <laughs> could have just recycled it into a new missile. <laughs> but um, Now, unfortunately, uh, as you could probably guess, Livingston did not survive. Uh, he did not die on site, though. He died in the hospital shortly after and it wasn't the blast that killed him it was actually the same thing that caused uh lung problems for jeff kennedy for the rest of his life and that was breathing in oxidizer Uh, they were exposed to some of the oxidizer which in your lungs turns into nitric acid uh not good to have in the lungs and so of course that killed livingston in a matter of hours, and plagued Kennedy for the rest of his life, basically. I think he died within the last 10 years. But
1: That's how he died?
2: Who? Livingston? Kennedy. No, but I can't imagine that uh, extended his lifespan. That's a good point. Yeah, it
1: could have been like a cold at that point.
2: Yeah. God. And um, if you'd believe it, the launch complex was completely destroyed and no effort to rebuild was made. They basically just filled it in with gravel. Now, Dan, it's thankful that that warhead hadn't detonated, but if yeah. it had, how, how bad are we talking?
1: Uh, Kane, in order to explain this, I actually have to take our listeners back to 1958 and in fact, take them back to a previous episode.
2: Number two, I believe.
1: Number two.
2: Episode number two.
1: Do you remember the title?
2: uh commotion in the ocean (laughs) is that right
1: yeah maybe i don't know i think it is
2: commotion in the ocean the bikini atoll god that's that's what i thought you guys were talking
3: about yeah
1: too playful um perhaps 1958 bikini atoll the united states tested a new type of nuclear weapon and this warhead that they dropped On the bikini atoll ended up being as we probably said in episode two about three times more powerful than they originally guessed that it would be this was known as the Bravo test the thing is this Bravo test the cloud of radiation that it produced is very very similar to that of the warheads on the Titan II missiles, so that's why this is important. So you take that radiation cloud, deadly radiation cloud from the Bikini Atoll test, from Bravo test. If you juxtapose, <laughs> <laughs> damn it, I was on a roll, man. Uh, if you if you take a map of the eastern seaboard and you juxtapose the map and size of this radiation cloud, here's what would happen.
2: And this is if it's detonated over D.C., right?
1: Yeah, a similar bomb dropped on Washington, D.C. would kill everyone in D.C., everyone in Baltimore, everyone in Philadelphia, half the population of New York City, and would inflict casualties and injuries as far north as Boston, which, for those of you keeping track at home, is about 425 miles away from D.C.
2: Now, of course, that is with optimal, not optimal, uh, with like,
0: <laughs> that, with that,
2: <laughs> that is, of course, dependent on wind patterns. But, yeah, the fallout, and yeah. blast and all that is enough to kill, which would be a significant chunk of the United States population, I imagine. Oh, yeah.
1: I, I should have done that math, but that would actually be too difficult and too morbid because yeah. then you'd have to factor in like suburbs and yeah, surrounding metro areas, counties. Yeah. And
2: it would be, easily get in the high tens of millions of people.
3: You'd also I have think, to consider the fact that the populations back in 1980 would
2: be a little bit different. True, but still, I mean.
1: Oh, no, we're, they the doc? this was, the, I think, the documentary's doing. Okay. They're just saying, like, if you drop something like that today on DC.
3: Oh, gotcha. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because I Um, don't think, like, in Philadelphia, for example, where, like, everyone would die. I'm guessing it wouldn't make a difference if it was, like, a million people versus one and a half million people. Right. If you were in that cloud, you're toast. We'll, We'll probably try to include a clip from the documentary in the Instagram post this week because... Kane, I mean, when we watched this documentary for the first time, probably like a few years ago at this point.
2: Yeah. It's like four years ago.
1: I think after this scene, you just reached over to the remote and hit pause.
2: When, I, when it happened, I looked over at you, and your mouth was just as wide open as mine was. It was unbelievable. It, that we Just the sheer excess of having that many missiles that are that capable is absurd. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think like I, I was just, I was caught off guard. I was appalled. And yeah, I mean, I, my mind couldn't even wrap my, like I could, I couldn't even calculate. I couldn't think it was just, we had to pause the video and in the documentary, they, I think for like 25 seconds, just sit silently with like a black screen yeah just to let that sink in. And we had about 30,000 of these. In 1965, (laughs) and probably like 50,000 by 1980.
2: The only other thing I'd say is, uh, you know, a lot of these people that worked on this, on the PTS team and the missile crew, like, and also the surrounding community, especially with, you know, those people that went in Livingston and Kennedy and um, seriously risked their lives for no reason. They didn't have to do that. You know, uh, it was pretty much their choice. It was a volunteer mission. And I think they and those around them were kind of expecting uh, appreciation, you know, to be lauded like heroes in a very modest way, but uh, they got pretty much the opposite. And basically all of them were reprimanded, especially Kennedy, for going in alone. He was hit with a letter of reprimand. Uh, A couple of them were court-martialed. And uh, I know they also, like, the Air Force pretty much... Refused to help with medical costs from the, the incident, and uh, a lot of them ended up leaving. You know, some of these people wanted to do this as a career, for their lives, and just got kind of shunned for uh, helping out at a very bad time. But I think the, you know, it was a time in the country when the Air Force probably didn't want their missile program to look bad. You know, the '80s, so they really just kind of all of the all of the documents were like human error operator error you know all yeah. this and it wasn't uh you know they didn't give credit where it was due i guess you know to put it very mildly
1: yeah yeah that i mean that documentary takes like a real sharp jab at that sort of thing because in all of those um department of energy released i'm assuming that's what spurred on this documentary is that Department Probably. of Energy energy declassification. I, in a lot of those, um, declassified broken air, Or Jesus, man, <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when Paul doesn't show up. Man, I drink too much. It's yeah,
2: that. You're already <laughs> four beers in by the time we even start.
1: <laughs> in in a lot of these broken arrow incidents, it is basically stated that it's like human error. Or, you know, so and so did this, which ignited that or, you know, it just like boils it down to one single human action. But then like this, this documentary takes a stance at like, well, what kind of system do you put in place that can be completely dismantled or malfunctioned based on one human action?
2: Right. Like, like Greg kind of alluded to earlier it's like we shouldn't really be in a position where even though it was an accident we're doing something as simple as dropping a ratchet could cause yeah. this sort of a disaster. Right.
1: I got I got some stuff if you want. Okay. Okay. Hit me. The that Secretary of Defense quote.
2: Oh yeah, sure.
1: And um and just some just some final stats to bring us up to modern day. So uh in this documentary the Producers interview this guy, Harold Brown, who at the time of the Damascus missile a- uh, accident, he was the Secretary of Defense. And he he was talking about this conversation he had with some officer, some Air Force officer who was at the scene after this all happened, after the explosion, probably like the next day. And here here's a quote. He says the first thing i wanted to know was whether there had been any scattering of nuclear material or still worse a nuclear explosion which yeah makes sense he goes on he says and when i heard that there had been none my level of attention went way down he said accidents were not unusual in the Department of Defense, yeah. he said there must have been several every day.
2: Yeah, when he first, when he first said that, before I realized like what he was saying, I was like, "What a jerk!" Yeah, yeah. Then like, it's what, really, what?
1: you're not paying attention. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's really more a condemnation to the system and just that there are there. I can't imagine how many things have happened like similar to this, maybe not on the same scale, but similar that were just entirely swept under the rug.
1: Right. Oh well, there's like I mean the Department of Energy, um, you know, declassified document says there were over a thousand. You you can probably look at like one or two hundred. There's a Wikipedia page that I found, um, just titled like U.S. nuclear accidents or something, and there were probably like one to two hundred just on that Wikipedia page alone. Right you know and that's that's just like stuff that like somebody took the time to like transcribe over so greg i want to make sure you have some closure with this all right i got some stats that you might appreciate uh um, as i mentioned earlier right through from the beginning of the atomic age to modern day the united states has produced about 70,000 nuclear weapons, and none of them have ever detonated by accident.
3: Um, in
1: 1987, the Titan II was deactivated completely. The la- I mean like the last Titan II was like stripped, warhead was taken out, dismantled, and they set off some dynamite in the um, missile silo. And that was it. today. We have about seven thousand nuclear weapons still active.
2: That's still a pretty big number. It's still a little too large. Yeah. It's still about six thousand nine hundred to seven thousand too large, I would say.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We probably uh, do you happen to know
1: enough to annihilate the entire world? Maybe just a country or two.
3: True. Do we know? I mean, I'm. I'm sure we do, but do you know the number that like Russia and China and other big players may have?
1: I didn't. That would have been a good thing to look up. I'm on it. Kane on the research desk.
3: <laughs> I imagine that's probably a good bit of why we still have 7,000. Yeah. Cuz I know that what is it? Is it start the strategic arms uh whatever the treaty is that where yeah. we've been trying
2: to reduce them with Russia.
1: Got to call Monteback.
2: Uh, Russia has about between 6,300 and 6,500 and China has between 300 and 320. That's less
3: than I would expect.
2: Wow. Yeah, well, who knows?
1: China doesn't really <laughs> care about has nuclear France, domination. France has 290.
3: Wow. Kind of crazy China. that France has almost as many as China.
1: China's focused on other sorts of domination.
3: Yeah, but they also have nukes. I mean... <laughs> yeah, True. <laughs> It's interesting looking at this, like, list is how, how many they...
2: I forgot how few countries there are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oops. There's only... Oh, that Yeah, there are only nine there's, countries.
1: I
3: think there's also only one that's ever given them up. That'd be South Africa.
1: Oh, wow. <clears throat> Man, they really went all out into the peace thing.
3: Well, I mean, that was, like, I think a big part of, like... I think they had to um, disarm in order to... Um. Get back into the international community. Ah. I think that was like a part of the agreement to do, to do that, pretty much.
1: Apartheid of the agreement. Whoa. wiki uh, 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 uh.
2: uh So, any <laughs> um, any closing thoughts on that, Greg? That's still a ton of nukes. Yeah, but uh, I mean, the issue, the whole whole topic.
3: Um, the my closing thoughts are pretty much that. Um i've learned one thing about rockets liquid fueled rockets uh terrify me uh just like i mean this is a perfect example of that that's why like i kind of had a bad feeling when you started talking about that wrench and the socket especially that sketchy socket that's uh yeah Yeah, man you
1: you called that perfectly
3: well i mean i took space i took space class uh, I, I like I've kn- I've known a decent bit about rockets. I've watched enough rocket explosions from NASA's early days to know that liquid fueled rockets can just be hyper dangerous. Yeah. Um, especially Startling, when you guys yeah, started I mean. talking about like the oxidizer and the and the fuel like just I mean if you got two things that are <laughs> if they touch they explode <laughs> sitting underneath a nuclear uh, nuclear warhead that's scary to begin yeah. with. And then you talk about dropping an eight-pound socket. Yeah. Also an eight-pound socket. That must have been an, an absolutely enormous ratchet, enormous socket. Like, not. I, I think my ratchet doesn't even. Well, obviously my ratchet doesn't weigh eight pounds. Like my biggest ratchet that I own, my biggest torque wrench doesn't even weigh that. So I, we're, we're I talking wish, seriously yeah. heavy-duty bolts.
1: I wish I wish I was still, at least sort of versed. In physics, as I used to be to like figure out what kind of force that that ratchet hit the the side with, but
3: oh, it must have been it must have been quite a bit
1: 70 Um, 70 feet, eight pounds.
3: We also have to consider the fact that it bounced off that uh, support or whatever, but like well, it was enough
1: to pierce a piece of metal that would normally contain a pretty intense amount of pressure from liquid fuel that is at some point being ignited, propelling the whole damn thing through the air thousands of miles.
3: To be fair, though, I mean, like, the skin probably really wasn't that thick. Mm. Thinking on the same lines as, like like, a pop can. Like, the walls of a pop can are, like, paper thin.
1: Yeah, we caught you red handed. Way in a cane. too close to the microphone. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, like the walls of a can are super thin, but like super strong when they're under pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah that's so a good I imagine point. the missile's probably similar where it's probably a lot thinner skin than you would expect.
1: That was yeah, that was a good helpful analogy. It was good.
3: Well, I, I you can thank like middle school science class for that yeah. one because I think we had to stand like they had, like my teacher had to stand on top of soda cans, nice, and then uh, you know opened one or two and then poured them out and then stood on it and immediately crushed you know as a physics demonstration.
1: Nothing wrong with the uh, public education in this country.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> nothing wrong with it. Zero
3: percent of it is wrong.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
2: especially I think number, they too number, much like, funding personally
3: <laughs> especially in nevada where they're like number 42 <laughs> maybe not that low but they it was it was his not 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 super well rated when i was living there
1: so so what um instead of searching for a moral of the story what is our message gonna be to paul if he um, listens
3: to the entire episode hang on to your ratchets carefully yeah please paul
2: <laughs> Keep those ratchets, keep your friends close and your ratchets closer. There he <laughs> <is them>. <laughs> <laughs> um.
0: Perfect. Hello, everyone. Hope you all are doing well. Glad you made it this far in the podcast because I would like to give a few of my thoughts, uh, do a little monologue for you. Um, just on the topic of today, I'd like to say that the boys did a good job Without any of my help, honestly, most of the stuff they talked about was pretty accurate based off the Command and Control documentary, but I like to preface before I get into it a little bit here, um, everything that I'll talk about is on mainly Wikipedia, what I've been looking up, so none of it is super secret, but um, I do have a little bit of background when it comes to... America's nuclear weapons and the safety and kind of operations behind them. So starting off with Dan's example of a nuclear bomb hitting DC, he was pretty good with how far it would reach. So there's actually a site on the internet. Basically it's called Nuke Map of a simulation of what the impact of a nuclear weapon hitting a certain city and to touch on the estimated fatalities just based off this one website, if that example did happen, roughly 964,000 fatalities and 904,000 people would be injured from just that one single nuclear weapon going off in Washington, D.C. So. If you can imagine that's a very populated area. And if you applied it to Damascus, like in the story here, it probably wouldn't be as high, but I imagine the overall impact would be exactly like Dan said, lasting and, and, and pretty crazy overall. So keep that in mind. Um, when we talk about, you know, how many. America and other countries have, and then also how much it takes just to, you know, wipe out the population on earth, but to kind of pick it up from the beginning of what they're talking about. So the Damascus missile field, uh, incident that was like they said in Arkansas and was part of the little rock air force base, um, little rock air force Base nowadays, um, just has aircraft, um, that they fly out. But many bases back in the day, especially during the nineteen sixties and seventies, a lot of bases had kind of a dual mission with their aircraft and then also, depending where they're located in the US, had a nuclear mission in that sense too. Since then we've closed many of those missile fields down, um decommissioned them rather, just based off of need and um you know we've decreased our stockpile of nuclear weapons over the years with all the treaties with Russia and China. Um, so we're left with three um, missile bases in the United States, that being at Malmstrom Air Force Base up in Montana. And that's where I am at. F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming and Minot Air Force Base in uh, North Dakota and Minot being also they have a bomber wing there as well to accomplish that part of the nuclear triad so um, we only have three Um, I couldn't find an accurate number of how many total we had at one point but a couple examples were of course down there in Damascus and Little Rock um, up also in North Dakota Grand Forks Air Force Base South Dakota and then a couple along the east and west coast kind of almost creating a perimeter around the United States. One of the big things that uh, (laughs) has progressed over the years, um, I would say is the safety regarding nuclear weapons and all the operations that go into them, whether it be the maintenance or security or the actual checks and balances when it comes to enabling and using these weapons. Um, and a good example is that it was brought up, you know, these maintainers when they're working on the missiles, whether it's the actual warhead or the actual missile itself, they used to work, you know, 12 plus anywhere up to, you know, roughly 17, 18 hours a day, which, you know, to any person that's a crazy work day, nonetheless, now the pressure added on of what you are working on you know, that's a lot of stress put on, you know, these airmen, airmen and officers working on them. So there, there've been rules put in place over the years. Um, The kind of going rate is a 12 hour workday and it's even got to the point where, you know, if you don't follow that, those mandates, you actually have to report if someone worked more than 12 hours up to um, the first general in the chain of command. So that's how serious they take. you know the amount of stress and fatigue that gets put on the airmen that are working on these weapons. So very serious in that sense. Um, and with that too, just the design over it all. So this is the Titan II, I believe, either Titan One or Titan Two missile system. Um, we've kind of narrowed it down, at least for the Air Force size. Uh, Side for the ICBMs. It's a Minuteman 3 So we had old Minuteman 1s and 2s and then also Peacekeepers Um, I know there were some Nike missiles that The Army had actually which were more kind of mobile units Um, And then also the Titan missile as we spoke about earlier. So we've kind of narrowed it down. We're now working with um, less different as many types of missiles um, but that way we can focus on the safety procedures with that Um, and what was said before in the Goldsboro incident as well when the B-52 had to jettison its its payload in North Carolina that one safety mechanism that saved it um, those type of things have been kind of thought about and reworked into actually, how we build them too. So, you know, back when a lot of this first started, they mentioned, you know, we don't know what could happen. You know, it could be a fire, it could be a, another explosion that could set it off and actually produce a yield, but they've put a lot more of those safety mechanisms into the actual mechanisms of, uh, the warhead. So those don't happen if they do occur. Um touching on the pizzeri so the fuel that is used to ultimately launch these weapons um, and get them airborne and, and send them to their location what it is is that it's that liquid fuel um, and, and when i talk about this pizzeri it's the propulsion system rocket engine so the actual engine that sends it into into motion so that is something that we you know are very aware of um, on a day-to-day basis and we take very serious if there are any other actual issues with that misery I don't know what the fuel to ignition ratio is Um, that's a little out of my department but um, I do know they are pretty explosive and, and pretty volatile too I've heard plenty of stories over the years, not necessarily up at my base, but, um, you know, people being exposed to it and and having those issues with their breathing. Um, I think one of the stories was they saw someone, you know, just from a distance, um, just walking along and just collapsing just from breathing in that air and not knowing it because you just can't see it. Um, it's, it's clear, just like the air. So it's not like a smoke or anything like that. It's, um, you know, invisible to the eye, so you would never know if you walked up on it you know, until you obviously passed out and um you have a lot of those issues down the road so um that's another thing with that is you know we take it very serious and um I know there have been incidents before I'm sure des Dan said you can look up what some of those are over the years um but we we do take care of that in that sense. Um, spoke on what is called the the two person concept. So that's been, um, ever since the creation of nuclear weapons, that's been one of those kind of safety, um, standards that we put uh, throughout everything that involves, um, these weapon systems. And the kind of purpose behind that is, you know, no single person should be able to do anything with these nuclear weapons without getting some type of verification from another person. Um, that minus the being the president. And that's been kind of debated over the years. Um, and as it currently stands, he is the only person in the entire um you know, dod you know military that has the authority but solely to um commence the launch of, of a icbm and the kind of purpose for that too is also um for for tampering too um just like everywhere else you know there's people that you know want to do bad upon us or each other and whatnot Um, So what that does too is, you know, at least allows or disallows someone by themselves to be tampering these weapons at the very least. There's another person that, you know, if they can't stop someone from doing that, they can at least let someone else know to bring help to, to stop that person. So there's a couple reasons behind that. Um, But a lot of it is that safety mechanism and that um, almost second Opinion mechanism to make sure that we're doing what we want to do um, to enable these weapons if we needed to. Now, I wish I could say that we don't have accidents or any incidents um, anymore, but it, with all things, it, it is bound to happen um, e- eventually. So um, one of my examples that I was going to bring up um, during the episode was an incident with um, one of those B-52s actually from Minot in North Dakota back in 2007 um, as they were basically just moving this B-52 down to Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. They um, were treating it as a training mission, so they loaded up what they believed to be um, basically are just dummy training cruise missiles that are supposed to be the same shape, you know, size, everything as the real deal, as the real um, nuclear cruise missile. The mistake they made was they actually put real live warheads, cruise missiles, on the aircraft and didn't realize it till 36 hours later after the B 52 flew south to Louisiana. So obviously not good, especially when it comes to the accountability of the weapons, um, you know, arming an aircraft and and launching it and not um, being in compliance with a lot of those start treaties um, with Russia um, definitely raised some eyebrows. And didn't put us in in the best of lights, but going off that though, the amount of investigations and, um, you know, basically from the DOD assigning generals to look into what happened, what the mistakes were in the processes and everything that followed suit, um, to truly find out what the problem was. So that's one of the more recent Um, issues when it comes to, um, incidents that we've been involved in, um, and that one is actually considered a, a bent spear, um, another one of those kind of military terminology flag words. So it's not necessarily something that caused or or would cause, um, a risk of nuclear war, but it's also, you know, it's still very serious and still an incident just recategorized. Into something else now I'll leave you with one last incident that happened back in 1967 and I'll say this one wasn't unconfirmed obviously but wasn't our doing because it was reported on that it was actually caused by what was believed to be UFOs so Back in 1967, up at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, they experienced some kind of abnormalities. So they were having alarms go off at the sites, um, at the silos. So they sent out what would be the security team to basically go um, check it out, see if anyone's at the site, you know, messing with it or anything like that um, to make sure it's secure and, and, and still operational. So the actual missileers that would you know ultimately launch the weapon. Um, they noticed a lot of things come up on their um, systems they had down in their capsule. They noticed that and they were trying to make contact with the security team that are out there. The security team actually w- witnessed, or so they reported it was, that they noticed this almost flying orb that was kind of, you know, in their words, zigzagging in the sky around the site that they're at. And they're reporting that back is like, yeah, we're seeing this thing out here. It looks pretty weird. Don't know what it is. Doesn't look like, you know, a normal airplane, normal aircraft. Um, Just based off of how it's moving around in the sky. So they noticed that. And then also the missileers at some point realized in their area of responsibility that all of their sites went offline. So, um, in the report, it said all 10 of their, um, silos actually just went offline. Basically just turned the switch, turned them off, um, off alert. So, you know, also, yeah, I think 1967, very much the, you know, one of the, a peak in the cold war not okay. <laughs> We've got some unidentified aircraft flying around one of the, uh, over the missile field. And then all of a sudden, all, you know, in this flight area, all of the silos are turned off. So, you know, again, raising eyebrows, raising the red flag of, you know, is this Russia? Is this China? What is this? Is it aliens? We don't know what. But um, very interesting. And then again, happened in another area, roughly 20 so miles away. Um, Something very similar was reported where all of their silos turned off as well. So as you all know, with all the great alien mysteries, we probably will never know the true end or if there actually was any Um, research or confirm reports or anything like that from the DOD or or whoever, but figured I'd leave you with at least a little bit of a fun, (laughs) not fun, but a little more interesting, a little more spooky incident that happened in um, the nuclear world many, many years ago. I like to say thank you for making it this far through my monologue. Um again, thank you boys for let me steal a little bit of the time for this week. Um as always, you know, give a subscribe, a review, a like, what have you to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen. And then also please go follow our Instagram page where we post uh, images from the episode and um, give you a good update of when the newest episode drops and that's at armchair underscore adventure underscore podcast for a handle so thank you for listening Bye bye Got a doll, baby, I love her so nothing else like her anywhere. Where you go, a man, she's anything but calm. Regular pint size, I had them bomb. baby little had bomb. I want her in my wigwam She's just the way I want it to be. A million times hotter than TNT.